Hello and welcome to the WPA OG podcast. This episode features part two of an interview with retired Lieutenant General Robert F. Foley, recipient of the Medal of Honor, West Point Class of 1963. Retired LTG Foley held numerous command and staff assignments during his 37 years on active duty. In this episode, he talks about the vital role of spirit in soldiers, advice for aspiring young leaders, and the most impactful changes at West Point during his time as Commandant. Now, please enjoy this interview between retired Lieutenant General Foley, West Point Class of 1963, and your host, retired Lieutenant Colonel Dave Seary, 94, Director of the West Point Center for Oral History and instructor in the Department of History. To jump back forward to uh, your time as Commandant of Cadets, what was your primary focus as the COM in accomplishing the West Point mission to develop leaders of character? Well, Dave, that's a good question because it almost depends on what your point in time is. Because, you know, going in, I knew that the honor code, the honor system, the honor education program was one of the single most important parts of developing leaders of character. And so I, in the summer of 1992, the superintendent, the dean, and I had a meeting with the honor committee, all 83 members of the honor committee, cadet honor committee, as well as the company honor education teams. We called them the CHET teams, as well as the company tactical officers and tech NCOs to discuss where we were in terms of honor education or any other issues that would come up. Because of some of the things that I knew about in education, the honor education program, first of all, when I arrived, there were only 22 hours of honor education from the time over the four-year experience. I said, you know, just the numbers don't seem enough. It just seems like there ought to be. But I also was concerned about things like a movie called Breaker Maria. Did you ever hear about that movie, Breaker Maria? Sir. did. Okay. It, we all watched it as cadets. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> that's one that I said, we're taking it out. And I, I hope when I left, it was out. And of course, I left in 94. So, and you may have watched it earlier than when I got there. I don't know, but. Yes, sir. It was, well, you know what it was, but for the listeners, I'll explain. You know, it was a two-hour movie of about three Australian lieutenants who were being court-martialed by a British court for having shot prisoners during the Boer War in 1902. And I said, you know, we ought to have some things that are a little more current to, to talk about. You don't need two hours. You can get the point across in 10 or 15 minutes of a video. I mean, it's a great movie, but two hours, you could, we want to get it connects into those small group discussions about honor and let them articulate their views and their thoughts and their ideas about our honor and listen to other cadets talk about honor and listen to the instructors who have been all through that and have a rich discussion during each one of those honor sessions. So I said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and look at all of the POI, the materials being used, the subjects being taught and point towards the relevant moral ethical dilemmas that cadets and commissioned officers would face. What kind of subjects ought to be taught and what kind of material ought to be used? And take a blank sheet of paper, just go and put that together and then come back and talk. But 
I also told him, do you think you want to add a class on honor to what's already there in those 22 hours? You got to tell me where in the commandant's military instruction you got to take somebody else, something else out. And I said, here's a good place to look. I didn't think that plebes necessarily needed to do beta assault training or throwing hand grenades. You're going to get that in, in basic training. You're also going to get it when you get to the unit. So, you know, there's some openings there where you could use, and you won't get instruction on institutional values when you get to the So maybe this is a good way to put more in there. But I said, if you add one, you got to figure out what you're going to take out because the environment at West Point is too rich. You can't just add stuff up, pile it one on top of another. It's too much. The cadets can't assimilate all that. They can't pull it all in. So anyway, we went from uh, 22 to 35 the second year, 45 the year I left of hours of instruction over the four-year experience. But it wasn't just the number of hours that was important. It was the analysis they did on what kind of instruction ought to be brought up, materials they were going to be used. It was a total analysis, and it was, as Jerry Galloway would say, this is brilliant. This is really going to make a big difference in terms of our mission, which is to develop a leadership. So that's one of the first things that I jumped on and hopped on, and I felt very good about. And then later on, because of my what I mentioned to you about soldiers caring for their fellow soldiers, I decided to enhance and enlarge the consideration of others program. I call it a consideration of others. And it's better called respect now, but I wanted to see if I could mirror the honor program because I think we ought to have respect representatives in each company. We ought to have respect education. We ought to have a respect code. Just cadets treat others with respect and dignity. Very simple. Because I thought that was a very important part of the warrior ethos. Again, my experience in Vietnam. And so put that in there too. We went in two years, put that program together. We had almost 35 or 40 hours of education in that regard and took other things out. You know, the other thing that then I, I would like to mention too, though, is this, uh, when I arrived in the summer of 1992, I watched as I went around Beast Barracks and Yelling Training and other places, and I could see that the Connect Cadre, the first and second classroom, were going through the motions and doing the duties of, that they had to and leading the cadets going through it. But I didn't feel like they were totally into it. I didn't see the enthusiasm and the, the desire on their parts to do a first-class job. It was just sort of something was missing. There was some complacency in there. I said, you know, it's about the spirit of the soldiers. You know? The leaders have to have spirit. You've got to have that in, in combat. You certainly need to have it in each soldier because... If not, you know, your soldiers, like what I just explained and how I was recommended for the Medal of Honor, you know, we were in uh, a deep jungle. It was heavily wooded jungle with triple canopy trees. The visibility was lifted to 10 or 15 meters. When we crossed that line of departure, you know, all the training and values and everything that I had instilled, we hope comes forward, but those soldiers are going to have to pick it up. They're the ones who are going to have to take it forward. And, it, and ensure that it gets done, it gets done properly. And so anyway, as I got back to looking at this idea of spirit, I said, well, we need to try to figure out ways where we can instill a spirit every day, some kind of programs or issues. So uh, the home football games each year, I felt were important because they added 
a tremendous ambiance at the start of the year. Everybody got excited about it. It got the uh, surrounding communities, the Corps of Cadets, the alumni excited. And what better venue could you have for the joining of football, the nation's history, and autumn foliage than Mikey Stadium? It was a perfect place to have it. So I said, well, you know, maybe we can add a little spirit to the football games. I saw, told the first captain, Sean Daniels, I said, hey, how about getting me your top five or six first-classmen branched artillery? He said, no. And I got those guys in my office and I said, hey, look, here's what I want you to do. We have these 75-millimeter pack howitzers that are used by the garrison for ceremonies. So I want you to get those and use those as your center point. Find a place somewhere around Mikey Stadium. Do a staff study. Do site surveys at different places and do courses of action, just a staff study, advantages and disadvantages of each course of action, and figure out a place where those 75-millimeter pack collars can be. So at the end of the game, so whenever there's a touchdown scored for Army, you fire off touchdown 6.6 rounds, field goal three rounds. Depends on what it is. So they did it, and they came back to me and said, right across from Lusk Reservoir. Well, of course, Dave, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure if there's six over there now, but I'm not, I know there's a couple at the end of each game. And that was 30 years ago. I guess it become a tradition. But I, t- I told them, and I said, okay, but when you do this, it has to be precision. It can't just be trolling, can it? You got to do just like you're going to be having artillery firing battle. It's good training for you. Well, they got all excited about it. They thought it was great, and they enjoyed it, and they did it for every home football game. The other thing I did, Dave, which um, Craig Cummings was the second detail King of Beasts, and uh, he was, you know, close contender to be the first captain. I, I, I selected Sean Daniels. But anyway, he became a regimental commander. And I asked him, and he was a very creative guy and a lot of good ideas. And so I said, what else can I do about spirit? And he said, well, you know, about six of our companies have these mascots. Keep them in the company. They're really a lot of fun, but they can't take them out of the company. They, they can't do anything with them. They can't go anywhere. He said, I think it'd be great if all 36 companies had company mascots. So I said, well, sure, why not? Well, pretty soon, all 36 companies had mascots. You know, you had the D1 ducks, the B2 bulldogs, the G3 gophers, the G4 guppies. I love to see a um, mascot rocket. I'm, I'm not sure if you've ever seen one, but, you know, seeing alligators and elephants <laughs> trying to do a rocket. Wow. What it was was a generated spirit. It was a lot of fun. And the other thing that I found out just recently was I was talking to a cadet in Caldwell, and I saw the uh, mascot icon on their shoulder pack and on their uh, gray jacket. Or so, I mean, it's something that's stuck around. They've taken great pride in it. So I've said, you know, it's things like that. It's just like the Duke Blue Devil. You know, it's there, give them pride, and they can generate that, and we have a lot of fun with it. And I think those kinds of things to generate spirit are very important. Yes, sir. Um, so, that gives some ideas of the kinds of things that I was doing at that time to ensure that we were on track. Yes, sir. You've already mentioned several different commands, but to reiterate, you were a battalion and brigade commander in Germany, an assistant division commander in Korea, and commanding general of the 5th Army in San Antonio, Texas. With such a diverse background, what advice would you give aspiring young leaders? One thing that comes to mind all the time is professional reading. 
And uh, this is for anybody, whether it's a civilian occupation or the military, but I, I just talked in terms of the military. We have some great courses, you know, the basic course, the advanced course, Command General Staff College and the War College, and they're outstanding, but they can't cover everything and they don't. And so my advice and my guidance is that every single officer, non-commissioned officer has to set goals of professional education, reading books about leaders and leadership responsibilities and leadership challenges that people have. Doesn't necessarily have to be military leaders. You can read about civilian corporate CEOs and the challenges they faced and what they did. But you have to be, it has to be a lifetime of professional reading. You can read about presidents, you can read about Roosevelt and uh, Prime Minister Churchill, what they thought about it, how they did things. It's just to me, it's, it's essential if you're going to be a tremendous leader of character and you're going to do the best for your soldiers and for your unit and accomplish the mission that you get a tremendous inventory of professional books and professional reading. My background, you can't see it, but off to my left, I've got a full library and I've got library of books here. I still do the reading because I'm still going out and talking to different places, people in different places. And so, you know, I want to make use of that. But I tell everybody that I've told people, students in junior high school and high school, same thing. You have to do it on your own. Don't just expect that you can live by the textbooks you get some some classes. So go out there and do it on your own. And Dave, let me give you a couple of examples. Founding Fathers on Leadership by Donald T. Phillips. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but to me, it's a great book because it's about our founding fathers. What's more important about our founding fathers now? Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Thomas Paine, Benjamin Franklin, General George Washington, they held steadfastly to the values that made our nation so great. And they had enormous challenges. Look at George Washington. In the winter of 1777-1778, a brutal winter in the Northeast and in Pennsylvania. And he asked members of the Continental Army to come with him. We're talking about 11,000 members of the Continental Army to leave their farms, their shops, their families, and come with him to a place called Valley Forge, where there was no food, no shelter, and no pay. They weren't getting paid. And, but they came. And throughout the winter, many died of malnutrition and disease, but still more came. So by the spring of 1778, you had 13,500 ready to defend freedom against British church. And if you read a book like that, you can see the kinds of problems they had, the kinds of issues they had, and what they went did and went forward, because they had tremendous challenges, and they didn't have much in the way of resources to do it. And yet, you know, in, at Yorktown, Washington was, was successful and ended the war, guaranteed our freedom. And so I think books like that are very important. I'll go to one that's near to dear to my heart, talks about basketball, but Coach K you know, was a class of 69, West Point. He was a coach at West Point. What is the head coach of the Duke men's basketball program? But he wrote a book called Five Point Play. He's written several books, but this one on Five Point Play, he really talked about the five values that he wanted to instill in every team. It was trust, pride, caring, communications, and collective responsibility. When you think about those five values, trust, pride, caring, communications, collective responsibility, 
any corporation, any organization can use those ratings. They're extremely important. And I had an opportunity to spend about three hours with them one afternoon when I was hiring a coach for Army basketball when I was a commonwealth. And it happened to be one year when he wasn't in the final four. So he had plenty of time on his hands. We got to talking about that, those values. He said, you just take collective responsibility. Me and my coaches, our job is to train them and coach them, get them ready for games, get them ready for the season, do all the things all year long that will make them the best basketball players and the best team. But once they step on the basketball court, they know it's their responsibility to win the game. So it's collective responsibility. We'll get you ready. When you get out there, you got to win the basketball game. Now, you obviously called a few strategic timeouts here and there, but basically the players knew they lost. It's not on the coach. It's on them. And what he did is he, he said, it's the same with you. You train your soldiers, but once they cross the line of departure, you hope they know the commander's intent and they carry it out. And so, you know, it's, I mean, it's a great book. I would be remiss, Dave, if I didn't talk about this other book, Standing Tall. I think it's a great book. I know the author personally. It's called Standing Tall. It's got subtitle of Leadership Lessons Learned in the Life of a Soul. And that's all it really is. It's about the leadership challenges I faced, what I did about them, and the lessons I learned along the way. And it goes all through 37 years of my, of my career. So I think it's a book helpful to your listeners to understand no matter where they are, what they're doing, to understand, at least from my standpoint, what I thought was very important about leaders, what they need to do, and whether it's peacetime or combat. And I got the title, actually. It came to me because I was thinking, first of all, I played basketball, and I'm tall. So standing tall, that would make sense. And the second thing was, the idea that you have officers, superiors, peers, and subordinates who may challenge you on certain things, and you need to stand tall against what you think is right. And so, again, it gets back to institutional values. What's the right thing to do in this particular thing? And maybe your boss is not going to like it or somebody else is not going to like it or your peers or your subordinates, but you've got to stand tall against that kind of confrontation. And then the last thing was, I used standing tall only once in the narrative of my book. That was recognition of those ter- terrific soldiers that I had that were with me, right beside me during that battle of 566. And it basically just said, every one of those wolfhound soldiers was standing tall that day. So, for what that's worth. Yes, sir. Wonderful. Now, sir, you were stationed at West Point three different times. You were a cadet from 1959 to 1963. You returned as a TAC from 1969 to 1972. And then you served as the commandant from 1992 to 1994. What were some of the most important changes you've seen at West Point during that period? Well, you know, that's one of the things that the superintendent, the dean, the commandant, and everybody struggle with all the time. How much change should be made? How much should we keep as solid tradition that you need to have, something we looked at all the time. You can have a strategic vision of where you want to go, but how much goodness is the representative of what the military academy stood for all the way back to 1802? I'll just talk to you about, from my standpoint as the commandant, because I think the changes that were made during my time and before and after were good, well-received. 
One of them was we certified and codified and established the company tactical officer in terms of standardization. The company tactical officers normally had five to eight years of service, successful company commanders before they came to us. We didn't have any standardized process for them to go over and take the company, just report in. Now there is a master's degree in leader development. The company tax come to live there. While they're going through that course, the academy generates the information for the course to make sure that they're getting the best out of from their experiences, what they've learned, putting it into the course each year. And new tax are there. They haven't been assigned a company yet, but they're going to be. And they can learn from the, uh, there by being right on site. And they know who they're going to replace. So they're going to be talking to that individual. So that's a great sense of continuity and standardization for the criteria we want company tactical officers to have. Second thing is the company tactical officers, okay. attack NCOs. When I was, um, came in as commandant, we had them at the battalion level. I said, no, we need to have them. Every single company needs to have a company tactical CO. TAC NCOs are the ones teach and train all the non-commissioned officers in the Corps of Cadets, from squad leader to platoon sergeant to first sergeant, brigade sergeant major. They set the example for what a non-commissioned officer does because officers do certain things and NCOs do certain other things. They are the ones that are out there in Yearling, Camp Buckner. They're doing land navigation. And in the billets, they're the ones that are taking care of maintenance procedures and so forth. So the non-commissioned officer is extremely important. Third, the attack NCO and having them at the company level is just absolutely outstanding. And so there you have what I talked about before, the officer NCO team. And together, they're instilling every day the values that those cadets need. And the, other, the second thing was, when I was a company attack, we lived up on the top floor of Washington Hall. Cadets had to come up there to get their evaluations and their counseling. And so, and if they had a problem, you know, it was too far to go in between classes. By the time they got up there, the tech wasn't there. So it wasn't worth it. So moving the company tech and tech NCO down into the company area right there near the oily room was perfect. Cadet can come back from class where he heard something he just didn't think was right. Just poke his head in and talk to the tech officer, the tech NCO and say, man, your experience, do you think? And so you had the tech officers and tech NCOs right there leveling process of the education because final analysis, they're involved in every aspect anyway. Ensuring that at the end of the four years that each one of these first classmen are qualified to be commissioned officers in the United States Army or another branch of service. So those three things I think were very important to ensure that the role of the company tactical officer and that function, which as I mentioned was put in by Savannah Thayer and how important it is to carry off the continuity of developing leaders of PR. So, sir, what remained the same that you saw through your years at, of experience at West Point? There were two things. One is discipline, and the other is leader development. You know, all of the, the things like the known uh, meal formations, room inspections, drill and ceremonies, the uh, indoor obstacle course. So all of these things were all part of ceasing discipline, which is so important to the military academy. And, it, and to getting that into the culture of every single cadet. So they understand that discipline is something that is normal. It's in my culture. It's something that will always be there. So we're organized to accomplish our mission and continue to do it well. The other thing I would talk about is leader development. You know, during the academic year, we have um, every cadet gets a certain position. 
and they go through those uh, positions during the academic year, do it during summer training, do it on the athletic field, on the field of friendly strike. There, there is opportunities for leading development, every single one. And I, I wanted to talk about this because I want to tell you a story about Pat Malcolm, who was the field goal kicker for the Army football team in 1992. And we were losing the game to na- this is the Army Navy game. There's another thing that won't change. And we lose in the game 25 uh, to 24 to 22. And with five seconds left, Pat Malcolm had to kick a field goal from 44 yards. He kicked it straight through the uprights. And everybody was jumping up and down and cheering. But I watched Pat Malcolm. He could see that the officials had thrown the yellow flag. Delay of game, five-yard penalty. He just turned around and took five steps to the rear and turned around again. Kept looking at the uprights. And he kept looking at the team getting ready. He knew he was going to have to kick it for 49 yards. Unwavering. Calm, cool, confident. He sat there. He kicked it again, straight through the uprights. <laughs> and I mean, won 25 to 24. I mean, that's the kind of leader who, when put in pressure situation, is the kind of leader you want to lead and command our soldiers and our troops. And you want them beside you in combat. So, so the leader development is extremely important. I only tell you one, one other thing about Vince's memories, and that is... Um, Best memory I had was race selection. When I was a yearling, and from that day forward, I wanted to be an airborne ranger. And the one that he knows 14 ways about it. However, the branch selection was based upon academic standing and academic standing only. And I was ranked 497 out of 504. Well, 496 cadets ahead of me picked branch they wanted. The only branch that was left was Signal Corps. I wasn't just disappointed. I was devastated. I went to the company tech office and said, is there any way we can change this? He said, it's done. Two days later, I'm walking through Central Area, and I got my head down, and General Stilwell, Commandant of Cadets, came up behind me. General Stilwell was, you know, we in the class of 63 called him our commandant because he was terrific. But he was also very interested in sports, and he followed basketball all the time. He had a lot of kind words for me all year when I was a first classman. And he said, why so gone, Bob? You're about to get ready to graduate. So I told him my situation. He said, you know, keep the faith. You never know when doors will open. Three days later, my company TAC called me and said, you've been redesignated infantry branch. You're going to go to airborne and ranger school. And when I was going to Signal Corps, they didn't have any slots for airborne and ranger school. So I got all of that. And then a couple of days later, I found out I was going to the 25th Infantry Division at um, Schofield Barracks. So I got everything that I ever wanted on West Point. It made all the difference in the world. I mean, I was the happiest camper. It launched me into the United States Army and gave me the trust and confidence to spend 37 years because the Commandant of Connect took it upon himself, not just the 4,000 that he's responsible for, but individual cadets that he could make a difference in. I never forgot about that when I became the 63rd Commandant of Cadets. It was a lesson learned. Yes, sir. Final question for you, sir. What does your service mean to you? Let me just go right back to when I was brand new second lieutenant. And I started going through all the assignments 
And I got to that point in time where I had my mandatory five years. And at that point in time, I could stay in the army or I could get on. And it was easy for me. I didn't do anything. I just stayed. Why? Because I enjoyed my leadership responsibilities, all the ones I had. I enjoyed the camaraderie with the officers, the NCOs, and soldiers. I enjoyed making a enjoyed the leader development responsibilities. But I also felt very good that I was making a contribution to my country. I felt good that I'd be doing that all of my life. I would be doing something where I could say, you know, this is a very important part of what I'm doing. And so my total focus will be make a contribution to the unit I am in, soldiers I'm serving, and the country that I'm so proud to be citizen of. Sir, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your memories with us. This has been absolutely wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. This has been a production of the WPAOG Broadcast Network. Please take a moment to rate and review the show and join us each week for a new episode. Thank you for listening.